The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. All right, so listen, everybody that's joined, my name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Special guest for the hour is Callum Thomas. I had Callum on several months ago and had him on our other show that we do occasionally. Now that I'm doing these as edited podcasts on my YouTube channel, wanted to have him back, especially given the broader insanity that's been going on uh, across all markets. So what I like about Callum is that he's able to kind of look at things without the narratives, which I think people often fall for, which we'll talk about. But Callum, before we talk about the current uh, environment, just introduce yourself to the audience as far as uh, your background, who you are, and what you do. Yeah, so I currently run a, a research firm called Top Down Charts, which is basically looking at the world and trying to figure out where the economy is going, where the markets are going, and come up with um, actual meaningful recommendations around asset allocation. So it's it's mostly aimed at fund managers, but um, I did recently launch an entry-level version, so um, there is that to take a look at. But before that, I was in um, funds management, so on the buy side there, um, basically looking at the same thing. So multi-asset, pretty much go anywhere, but um, you know, sort of a mix of funds really, um, but a little bit of bread and butter asset allocation, but as well as some sort of interesting stuff around the edges. So um yeah, and I did that for about 10 years, did a bit of little bits and pieces of education, but the real education happened um, when I was at the desk um, looking at the charts and uh, reading the reports and just seeing things unfold. Okay, so I have said very publicly for the last several months that this environment is, for lack of a better way of saying it, complete and utter hell. And if you're a stock-only investor, you would think, well, this just looks like a standard run-of-the-mill correction. The problem is, of course, that we have never really had a correction in stocks where you have such a severe sell-off in bonds at the same time. And that has all kinds of implications on asset allocation and perhaps with a lag, the stock market itself. Talk through the various things that you're looking at from a macro perspective as you think about the bond market first here, because the most frustrating and difficult thing about the way this has played out is that you have not had treasuries be the risk-off asset the way historically it tends to be when you see uncertainty in equities. I mean, looking at the year-to-date returns, it's basically only cash and commodities that have done um, positive returns. And yeah, everything else is um, down almost by about the same amount. 
which is quite challenging for sort of the traditional asset allocation portfolios, which are like, okay, I'm going to own some stocks, I'm going to own some bonds, and when stocks go down, bonds will probably go up, because usually what's driving that is that the economy turns down, and so then bonds tend to rally in that situation, and stocks, you know, obviously would would fall usually because um, the earnings outlook gets downgraded and um, so on and so forth. So, but this time it's, um, yeah, it's nothing like anything in the last 40 years and I guess there's a, there's a few sort of problems with this too like if you kind of educated your either either your mental models or your you know mathematical models on the last 20 years you'd be completely wrong-footed in this type of environment because I think it is truly unique environment this is going to be one of those periods where we're going to be looking back you know, 10, 20 years from now saying, oh, you know, is it like the 2020s? Um, but it's, I, I think, probably one parallel, or the closest is the 70s. And unfortunately, um, there's a lot of data series that don't actually go back to that period. Like you, you'll see, um, you know, the bond drawdown charts that say, um, you know, this is the worst drawdown on record, but we don't have... Um, Unfortunately, don't have the data back to um, the seventies, and um, I guess it's the, the challenging thing too is that where the starting point was yields were basically nothing, and if you have a big loss, at least you have you know when when yields were you know high single digits, even double digits in the seventies eighties, at least you had a bit of a yield cushion to to eat into. This time there wasn't that, and so um, you know I think it's. It's more of a bonds are focused on inflation, just repricing against the sort of long-term inflation aspect and also against um, what, what the Fed is doing. Given that equities were kind of propped up by low bonds, then that's kind of taken the um, pillars of support away from equities as well. So essentially you mentioned the data set, right? Because... The University of Chicago has something called the Center for Research and Security Prices, CRISP. And if you look at a lot of these kind of historical research studies that look at different anomalies in you know, prior decades, a lot of them reference the CRISP data set, you know, CRSP data set. And I've, I've often heard that line that you know we haven't seen anything like this in the last 40 years. And to your point, because oftentimes when people look at the data, they don't go beyond or can't see beyond the past 40 years. But if you look at that historical reconstructed crisp data, you'd find that even the 70s and going back to even periods like the 20s, 30s, 40s, you would not have such a strange coincident behavior where you have a drawdown in equities and then a drawdown in treasuries in particular at the same time. And I'm saying that very purposely because if you look at the 10-year index that CRSP, that is from the Chicago University of Chicago, what you find is that even in the 70s, which a lot of people will reference in terms of this being the closest parallel to, you did not have this unrelenting sequence of declines where yields are rising, 10-year treasury total return indices are losing money at the exact same, uh, in the exact same path, right, as equities. Now, I mention all that because whenever you do any kind of research, as you know, uh, that's trying to identify what's happening in the current environment and what could happen in the future, the presumption is that the historical data set has something like what we've seen, some parallel. And to your point, this is really one of those unique situations where nothing in the history books 
would have told us it could have played out exactly this. Now, hindsight bias, of course, you can argue that, listen, inflation was due to come. You were going to have this kind of sell-off in bonds. But it's that interaction with stocks, which I think is what's not really thought through by, by most investors. Now, you talk about asset allocation. You mentioned cash and commodities. Talk about how you think about the role of cash for a moment. If it's something that should be considered its own separate asset class, or if it's more a residual of the investment process? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, like, you know, how do you come up with, say, a valuation indicator for cash? Where, um, you know, because it's, it's relatively straightforward to do that for the others, like commodities, um, equities, um, bonds, rates, credit. I mean, anything with a price that goes kind of up and down, it's relatively easy to put a some f- form of valuation anchor in place. But for cash, it's kind of doesn't make sense as such in a way. But as a residual, it, it may make sense. Like if bonds and equities are both showing up as extremely expensive, then you could interpret that as basically saying cash is cheap. And, and there there are certain properties specific to cash that you can kind of look at, like positioning in cash, um, you know, in the same way that we'd look in, at positioning in, in equities and bonds and other asset classes. So there's definitely that. I mean, there are some fundamentals for cash that we can look at, but then um, like looking at the actual return that you get or the expected real return, like, and you can kind of look at the curve and come up with an estimate of that but you know under most circumstances it looks rubbish and in the end um, the, the purpose of cash is to basically protect capital um, and and well, protect nominal capital um, you know the expected real return might be negative for cash it might be negative for bonds but um, you know the your variance or your you know your, the path of your nominal return is is a little bit more straight line at least for cash versus um pretty much a very wiggly line for for the others so um i think you know and, and if we were to look at hindsight um that situation where like at least on my metrics um bonds and equities were both looking extreme expensive um bonds are now looking neutral um but when they were both looking expensive um yeah, if you did take that interpretation that, yeah, when those two are both expensive, then cash is cheap, that probably uh, having a nice look in the rear view mirror, that would have been um, a pretty sensible approach. The issue, of course, is that, to your point, right, it's a straight line, there's, there's no variance with cash. So it works in an environment like this because everything else other than commodities have been losing money. But when you do any kind of a historical rotation strategy or back test where cash is your expression of defense, you find that no matter what period you're looking at, cash for the most part doesn't work as the alternative assets because it's really not an asset to, to kind of your point. And that, that kind of goes to the, the studies around market timing. Market timing does not work because all the studies on market timing show that the, the risk-off defense asset you time against is cash, the asset class or cash. Well, the problem with cash, of course, is that it has no momentum, right? So in an environment like this where most things have downward momentum, sure, cash is king, 
But the reality is, historically, you're better off having a chance, usually in defensive sectors, usually in long-duration treasuries when you're in a highly volatile period, because at least you have the opportunity to potentially make money, even though, obviously, that's not been the case this year. So how, how should you think investors think about taking risk here when it seems like everything could be a landmine, right? So if you go into bonds, you've got the risk that yields keep spiking. You also have the risk, by the way, that yields spike not because of inflation, but because credit spreads blow out, which we'll talk about. If you go into stocks, well, there could still be another big you know, black swan, big decline to come. And if you go into commodities here, they're already so extended that, at least from a sequence of return perspective, you could get in and then face an immediate drawdown. Talk through how you think about that risk here in terms of putting some newer money to work at this juncture in 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 the cycle. I mean, the, the evidence seems to be stacking up that stocks are in a bear market. And so in terms of um, what to do with that, I, I guess it, it depends on what you're trying to do and what sort of um, time frame you're operating under. It would, you know, you, you generally have a bearish bias. Um, but, you know, as I put in the latest chart storm just this weekend, um, shared a chart that, that that showed a bunch of, um, you know, the, the, the bear market rallies during the, I think it was the 1930s bear market, and not saying that this is 1930s by any chance, but um, assuming that I'm correct there and that we are in a bear market, then from a trading standpoint, there are often some really deceiving and, um, you know, can can be quite sharp rallies that will occur throughout the process you know, as, as you get these sort of like you know attempts to try and find the bottom um i mean in, in terms i guess quickly just on why i think that that is the case um we also we always need to come back to the point that we're at pretty high starting point valuations and so it was always um basically at that point priced for perfection and now um we're basically moving into a a lower growth period, um, certainly different from that reopening rebound. I count just about a dozen d- different leading indicators that are pointing to slow growth ahead. And so those are, for instance, uh, monetary policy tightening, rising bond yields, uh, rising mortgage rates, uh, rising energy costs, and just plain loss of momentum, uh, the, the tightening that we've seen in emerging markets. And that's that's pretty important because that flows through into earnings and um you know those those have been um pretty pretty stellar run um post pandemic uh, on t- in terms of earnings um and also just monetary policy that the tides going out there in terms of the liquidity so i mean it's almost the exact opposite of um 2020 that now that the um there is this sort of global scramble to try and at least remove the stimulus um let alone try and tighten somewhat and try and get inflation under control. Um, and, and those are pretty much the the key drivers there. And then also technicals, they're basically breaking down and um, and it's sort of you know, all relatively internally consistent. So I think um, I wouldn't be looking to try and catch the bottom in equities at least until, you know, there's a lot of water to go under the bridge with this sort of process. You'd want to see valuations come down a lot more. Uh, you'd want to see uh, you know, the economy basically go down. So the PMIs, for instance, you'd want to see them go below 50 and then start to stabilize. You'd want to see central banks um, basically run their course in terms of the tightening and 
tighten enough to break things um, fully and then, you know, start into easing mode and positioning to be all washed out. But, um, you know, we're, we're still early in the process and still waiting for, you yeah, know, we'll be waiting for quite some time, I think, before those uh, conditions are met. But in terms of bonds, um, I, I, I would be definitely looking at bonds for the bottom before equities. Um, you know, there's going to be probably, I'd say, a buying opportunity in treasuries, I'd say. Um, and I'd say that globally, developed market treasuries were the equivalent there um, actually fell a lot more than US treasuries. And so um, that, you know, obviously if you fall more, then it kind of gives you a bit more um, space on the upside. Uh, emerging market treasuries, um, also US dollar terms, um, also looking pretty interesting at this point. And as I mentioned before, even US treasuries, on my valuation indicators, they're starting to show up as um, neutral slash slightly cheap. I stress-tested those models. They say, um, you know, the time to sort of close your eyes and buy um, is 4 4.5%. The, the thing that we would, would take us there would be just persistent inflation. And so, you know, I think for, for bonds to bottom and have a, you know, sustained bullish run, you need um, sort of a passing of the torch in terms of the drivers of bond prices at the moment from inflation to economic activity. And and for now, economic activity is still sort of um, puttering along. But if it follows the leading indicators down and we get a bit of a recession, a soft landing, a hard landing, whatever you want to call it, some actual slowdown in growth and a topping out in inflation, then um, that's kind of the key ingredients um, for some bond market um, improvement. I used to call those periods the deflation pulse, right? That permeates when suddenly it's concerns about the economy slowing down and then yields dropping on the long end in advance in response to that anticipation. I used to call that often when I was writing for MarketWatch. And and I want to take a second to, to talk about treasuries just from a personal and professional perspective because this, again, has been such a very unusual period where treasuries have not acted like a safe haven asset. Now, if you did have, let's play this out. Let's say the historical behavior of treasuries comes back into play, meaning that long duration treasuries, prices go up, yields start going down, and then equities start getting volatile. If if you have anything like what you've seen in history, treasuries in those standard, let's call them risk-off periods, it's not unusual to see them outperform equities by 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 basis points in a matter of weeks. And the best example of that is really 2011. And I'm, I'm referencing 2011 for a reason here, and I'm going to get to the question in a second, because in 2011, that's when S&P downgraded U.S. debt. And in August of 2011, you had uh, the S&P drop something like 17% in a matter of weeks, while treasuries rallied, you know, somewhere around 20 in a matter of weeks. So you're talking about, you know, a near 4,000 basis point spread, literally in just a few weeks, you get that convexity with treasuries running. I'm curious if any of the work that you've done, if you see any parallels to what happened in 2011 in terms of credit downgrade risk and kind of the lead up to that summer crash of 2011 to what's happening now, because the more rates keep doing this and the more inflation keeps raging, I just don't see how you don't have some credit rating agency come out and and make a statement on U.S. creditworthiness. 
We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I mean, yeah, I think... I guess at a high level, you'd, you you might think, well, higher interest rates means um, higher interest cost for the U.S. government, given that the um, the borrowing amounts are not small. But I guess uh, potentially, well, at least partially offsetting that is um, nominal growth um, is probably rising enough to kind of. Well, I'd have to actually go and look at the math around that. But conceptually, um, if nominal growth goes up enough, then your um, the nominal value of your tax receipts are going up, and um, so you know, in theory, there should be a little bit of offset there. And and ultimately, that's kind of how why um, bond yields went up in the first place. That whole sort of inflationary shock. Well, I think um, probably the credit space, well, you know, corporate credit would be where I would potentially look for downgrades um, just as the economy worsens. But um, I think, you know, we would actually need to see the economic pulse um, really forthrightly turned down to to see that. Um, I mean, looking across industry, CDS, um, one thing I did notice that was kind of interesting was um, – uh, bank CDS and technology sector CDS have been um, sort of just steadily working their way upwards. Um, I mean, it's probably more to do with just the general environment of um, worsening investor sentiment and what's going on in equities, but I think that's um, definitely something to pay attention to. And I mean, if we look at IG credit, so investment grade credit, Last I looked, it was about 50% triple Bs. So there is um, also the element of, you know, the whole fallen angel aspect. Um, do you get a wave of downgrades that makes, um, you know, that sh- shunts a whole bunch of IG into HY space? But to your point, it's like, okay, that's a good example. So in the case of my, my junk on, junk off strategy, it's based on the utilities trigger, goes back to the 1920s as a leading indicator of volatility in equities. When you have volatility in equities, credit spreads will tend to widen. So the whole idea of that strategy, right? And it's you know there's an index that it, it you know, tries to benchmark against. The whole idea is basically that it tries to avoid credit spreads widening. So you're in treasuries in advance of spreads widening. High yield becomes higher yield during that risk off event, and then hopefully not only have you avoided it, you've made money in treasuries at the same time. But then you go back into high yield at a higher yield. And guess what? When you have a year like this year where the entire bond market is shifting as opposed to yields rising necessarily because the spread's widening. Again, you you don't do all that well. But again, these periods are very, very abnormal. Now, that leads to a little bit of a discussion here around sentiment because I see a lot of, I think, comments from people that are not understanding the way market dynamics work and not understanding also the very fact that even though a signal may not work in the small sample of the here now. 
that does not mean you should ignore the signal the next time it occurs. And I've, I've, said, I've used this line many times earlier last year that the level of uneducated speculation I was seeing in comments on Twitter and in the way people were framing things was astounding last year. And with hindsight, it was very clear you know, that that was a sign that things were about to get very, very ugly. Talk about how do you not only think about sentiment from an asset allocation positioning standpoint, but how do you think about uh, evaluating what sentiment is from various types of charts that you look at? Yeah, um, and I guess just a passing comment there too on the um, so the new wave of speculation that, that that kind of or the new wave of speculators that came online is um, you know just like if you'd kind of educated your mental models or your mathematical models on the last twenty years, you'd be seriously wrong-footed if you developed your mental models of um, you know how markets work over the last two years. Then um, it's um, Things work quite differently in a bear market than a bull market, especially um, the kind of raging and extremely unusual period that we just went through. But in terms of uh, sentiment, um, in terms of like how you look at it, I mean, it's it's a big jungle really of um, different indicators here. Like there's the various weekly surveys, um, for instance, my one, which um, if you haven't voted in, go and vote in that. But then. There's a lot of different um, survey data out there. There's um, futures positioning, flows, positioning, leverage indicators, and they all kind of behave just a little bit differently, but the the same basic principle is you look for extremes and extremes will, will tell you the most information. I mean, like just stepping back for a minute and thinking conceptually about sentiment is basically your, your standard sentiment indicator is going to have momentum information through the range and uh, contrarian information at extremes. And so if we think about the equity market, the stock market with like the, the sentiment surveys, as they are becoming more bullish, it's usually in line with the price, which is becoming more bullish. Um, and then when they... So reach a peak and turn down, that's when the sort of contrarian information starts to kick in. You often see um, a top around that kind of situation. So I think uh, it's definitely useful, but then it's, uh, I think the current environment is much like 2008, for instance, where or, or, the, or the 2000s, where sentiment uh, took a big lurch to the bearish side. And then, yeah, you get these um, little rallies off the back of that. But, you know, sentiment can get to extremes and stay at extremes when you're having a, a trend change. Um, so that's kind of the, the complicating factor there. It's um, definitely information in it, but it, it's also, um, it can be a little bit, I don't know if I'd say unreliable, but you have to kind of take it in context of, um, of all the other kind of background pieces of information as well. And then also, I guess, um, just looking at a specific chart from this week, I've shown there the, the surveyed measures of sentiment, which are, I think, something like two standard deviation low or, or that they've dropped to 2008 levels. Meanwhile, the surveys of positioning are showing that actually equity allocations went up a, a little bit in April, um, at least on the um, AAII survey. I guess yeah. If you if your portfolio in that question that you're surveying is stock, bonds, cash, 
given that stocks and bonds are falling at the same time, then um, if, if, if you didn't do anything to your portfolio, then the equity allocation probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. Or, or maybe you dumped the bonds because you thought that they were going to um, fall even further. I think um, definitely is one of uh, an indicator or a sort of a category of information that is worth factoring in. But I think it's um, it can be risky just to look at it by itself. Um, I think there's, there's some shorter term sentiment indicators that are quite good for trading, and then um, there's some sort of slower moving ones that that are actually quite good for. Um, for the longer term timing aspect, and and actually, yeah, the the last point to make, which I think is quite interesting, is that a lot of this the information and sentiment versus positioning, but at least sentiment um, can be explained by price. So a while ago, I had a look at the those weekly surveys, um, the AI investors intelligence, etc., and they, yeah, yeah, ninety percent of the um, the movement in the and the surveys was explained by um, movement in the price. So, you know, if you if you um, were doing things on a budget and you didn't get access to um, the the various data on sentiment, you could just take price and do a couple of transformations on price. So, you know, even just RSI or percentage of days positive counts of different um, percentage movements, um, you, could, you could actually probably get um, most of the sentiment information in there and. Well, there's kind of two reasons for that. Just um, quickly, is one is price heavily influences sentiment, but then also um, sentiment influences price. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, right? Because the the bulls would argue that sentiment surveys are so bombed out that they are a contrarian signal. But the problem is that if sentiment is following price, and the sentiment is also following recency bias. Right, because people are used to, you know, corrections or these types of declines, you know, in the sort of ten, fifteen percent range. Well, then we don't really know what extreme negative sentiment is in the event that we're not in a normal correction. In the event that it is more like a an O eight or a twenty twenty, where it can go down quite a bit more, which which will tease out for a bit. Okay, so so we hit on several different areas. I'd be remiss if I didn't try to get your thoughts on food prices and agriculture, because this is what everybody's always talking about. You have a camp that is wildly bullish on the space, meaning expecting food prices to go even more vertical than they have. Uh, you have many that are also saying that, well, it's maybe too one-sided. There might be contrarian trade there. That Food prices are not going to be as uh, significant as one might expect. From the research that you've done, what's your what's your take on uh, where you think uh, ag prices might be headed next? Well, there's a there's a couple of sort of background sort of features that I would kind of reflect on. So I was I was quite bullish on agries back in um, it was 2020, uh, and the reason back then was well, one of the key things that I was looking at then was you look at the capex. Conducted by food producers, by global food producers, and uh, it was actually running at um, record lows, and uh, and that was also after an extended um, downtrend. And so, with any commodity, uh, when the the rate of capex is uh, very low, you generally basically want to have a bullish bias, and it's actually the same 
story across uh, commodities. And I mean, it is quite logical to expect that because commodity, well, agri-commodity prices, just well, every commodity kind of price actually, um, had spent about a decade doing pretty much nothing or going down. Um, so that's starting to turn up, but it's still fairly low, um, at least last when I looked. The other thing back then, um, and this kind of changes um, the Southern Oscillation Index, um, so basically indicator of um, whether you're in El Nino or La Nina, um, that had started to turn as well. And, uh, you know, it's um, yeah, it's a bit complicated because you, you, there's um, it's difficult to actually say, oh, this weather environment negative is, is going to, send up every prices because you kind of get different effects um, around the world depending on um, which um, regime you're in. But the, the big swings or the really volatile kind of shifts are the thing to look for. So a really big um, shift in the Southern Oscillation Index, for instance, um, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, to think about why, um, you know, a big unexpected change in weather would um arguably have the, the most impact. And then, of course, um, all that pandemic disruption that did occur. And at that time, sentiment positioning was kind of just starting to tick up. So it was the perfect storm back then to drive agri-prices up. And then, of course, you got the, um, the geopolitical shock this year, which gave it an ex- extra leg up. I would have thought that without that geopolitical shock, we'd probably be looking a bit toppy because, um, yeah, sentiment and positioning are fairly one-sided, and they still are quite quite bullish. And, you know, kind of compounding on the situation has been the, the spike in input costs. But I think agri-prices is where you tend to see the more resolute or the more the sharper, more rapid um, supply response because, you know, you can, you can kind of change crops or um, increase, do things to increase yield versus, um, you know, planning a new mine and um, taking years to get a mine working, you know, for instance, for um, base metals. So, I mean, I think um, we're probably a bit toppy for um, agri-prices. In terms of geopolitics, it's probably, I think, the way I think about the geopolitical situation is kind of like COVID. It's um, it's not going to kind of get fixed overnight. You know, anything that that's going to, be kind of good is going to be quite slow to come about and meanwhile it could get worse so um yeah i mean given the way the sentiment positioning's set up at the moment you definitely argue that it's probably more easy for it to fall than it is for it to repeat what it just did we'll be back after a quick break Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, which kind of goes back to that point that there's so many landmines if you're trying to put some new money to work because even though there's been a lot of momentum in the space, momentum crashes are a very well-known phenomenon if people will actually look up what that term is from a factor perspective. 
Now, I'm sharing in the space, uh, Callum, the, the tweet you put out looking at how thematic strategies perform once there's an ECF launch in the theme. And I think this is, this is an interesting thing to kind of talk about for a bit from the standpoint of the Bitcoin uh, trade or investment as well. What does Wall Street do when it tries to come up with a new strategy or a new investment vehicle? It looks at whatever has performed the best over the last cycle because the idea is that, well, people chase performance, so you want to launch something which is hot. But by the time they actually launch that product around that investment theme, it, it may already have be, be too late. right? And you can see that historically with a lot of different funds and themes. It's not unusual, right? Because this is, again, this is what Wall Street does. It makes sense. Wall Street is not going to come out with a Bitcoin uh, fund around the time when Bitcoin isn't having momentum. So, so let's talk about that for a moment, because I think this is interesting in terms of a lot of the excitement around the, the Bitcoin futures ETF that came out late last year. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have really co-moved very high, heavily to the NASDAQ. Correlation has been quite high. And there was a lot of excitement that the institutionalization of Bitcoin would mean that Bitcoin would keep on going higher and higher. And it's been quite the opposite. Talk through how you think about the space and what you think people maybe get wrong when they when they frame that type of a narrative around cryptocurrencies. Well, I think, you know, just thinking about the emergence of new asset classes, um, you know, even if you had like, like yeah, forget cryptocurrencies for a, for a minute, and, you know, if we had some imaginary new asset class um, popping up that was, you know, maybe it's space mining or something like this, or, yeah, just... Some some random asset class. Um, it's even if um, it did go up over time, they're still going to have cycles. They're still going to be, um, and there's going to be, well, especially if it's new and you have mass adoption, then you're going to have, um, you know, extreme enthusiasm at the top, and um, which actually is its own worst enemy. I mean, you know, there was lots and lots of people, um, at least. Um, over this corner of the world, um, and probably I'd, I'd imagine around the, the rest of the world, that were starting to put commodities into their allocations um, at the height of the commodities boom. And it was, um, it definitely wasn't a new asset class as such, but um, it was kind of being packaged as a bit of a new asset class, a, a new way to kind of um, improve risk adjusted returns based on um, <laughs> the historical data, which um, obviously had some positive skews to it. In terms of how I'm thinking about Bitcoin, I mean, I, as a disclaimer, I don't look, you know, very closely at it because um, most of my clients don't actually um, invest in it or, well, they can't invest in it. But um, the, the way I think about it is um, basically liquidity drives it. So, um, yeah, there's all these different um, things and bits and pieces around the margins and um, over the long term, institutional uptake probably does um, help it go up, but like all assets, it goes through cycles, and those cycles are dictated by what's going on in the economy, what's going on in um, monetary policy. You know, as it, it, just just looking at the what happened in 2020, um, 2021, the surge of liquidity, surge of uh, central bank easing, the fiscal stimulus um, that clearly uh, gave a big boost to um, to crypto. And everything really, um, anything, any sort of asset that is speculative or risk-seeking, and so now that those liquidity tides are going out, um, 
you know, obviously we're, we're, we're starting to see that um, have a negative impact. Um, so, you know, equities, um, NASDAQ in particular. And so I think that that is, um, that all kind of makes sense. And, uh, you know, if, if we sort of assume that they were all kind of in the same basket, NASDAQ being quite expensive, you know, the economic situation likely to turn down at least the monetary policy, definitely um, turning from tailwind to headwind. I wouldn't be expecting much um, good things to come from from that space um, or any risk asset really um, in the immediate term. Yeah, and I still think that, that there's a lot of um, uneducated speculation still going on there, and you know, I often rant about terminology like store of value, and I get some nonsensical response most of the time that only furthers my point. But I, I think the the issue in in this environment is that we're faced with a world where everyone is simply regurgitating these one liners, whether it's in cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Tesla, yields, inflation, and people aren't really kind of taking the next step of of going down the rabbit hole and asking more questions to see if what their initial thought actually is valid. So from that standpoint, again, going back to the way you look at markets and your own research, procedurally, Callum, how do you get out of the the echo chambers that are naturally occur, right, when you're doing any kind of research, when you have a certain thesis, a certain belief? How do you try to, or what kinds of data sets do you look at to try to challenge your your view? And maybe that's another side question, which is that what would be the thing that would maybe make you turn extremely bullish? Well, the question there, or the answer there is to look at the data, <laughs> you know, um, look at the data, think, and um, yeah, be open-minded to changing your opinion as the data changes. Um, for me, it's just keeping an eye on those charts because uh, at the end of the day, um, people have a lot of different opinions and, you know, you can just end up, um, you know, following the, the noisiest person in the room versus um, taking a look at what the charts, what the data are actually telling you. You know, it's that line, um, I tweeted out that video of um, Bertrand Russell the other day, and it, but um, something he said reminded me of that old market aphorism is that you, you have to trade what you see, not what you want to see. You know, that means actually paying attention to, to what the data, what the charts are, are saying and, um, and a bit less on, you know, what you think should be going on or even what anyone else think should be going on. But in terms of what I'd, what I'd want to see to turn bullish, well, you, you basically need monetary policy to kind of come full circle. So, I mean, I think really the answer there is mostly time because I think it's just going to take time before policy tightens enough to take the steam out of inflation, to damage the economy enough, to to either at least pause on tightening, uh, let alone turn back to stimulus. What would be your your time frame for which you think that that could be a possibility? And I'm saying that because, I don't know, man, I mean, the more I look at liquidity draining as quickly as it has, even before the Fed started to raise rates, the more that I look at the devastation in terms of various asset classes, the overall market cap that's been lost, the market value that's been lost in bonds, what we're seeing so far in stocks, it seems, and and of course this uh, horrendous uh, mortgage rate spike, it seems to me like you could either be at the doorstep of a recession or in one now, 
which means the Fed, which means, by the way, inflation probably comes back down faster than people think, which means the Fed's not going to raise rates anywhere near as aggressively as, as is being talked about. What, what will be your time frame for you, how you think that that full circle comes comes about? Not, not to sound like a broken record, but it, I'd go back to the the charts, the data, and let them um, kind of pave the way forward. So, um, yeah, I kind of prefer not to try and project or make too many prognostications about the future um, because it's uh, easier to look at what the current situation is and, um, you know, base your opinion, your um, your actions on that. But, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of time frame, <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's so many um, kind of ifs, buts and variables in, in the way that it's kind of tricky to nail that down, really. Um, I mean, in terms of the Fed potentially pausing, I mean, it, it, it comes back to, you know, it does inflation get out of control or does it continue to spiral? Is there a point in equities down that they might consider financial conditions have tightened enough? Um, you know, an, an actual, you know, the ISM going below 50. Um, the, the thing to remember too, and I think probably a good sort of parting thought is that uh the last couple of years have been very fast and, you know, some people described the 2020 March crash as, um, as a bear market, but, you know, I kind of pushed back and say that it was more of a crash. But even if we said it was a bear market, it happened really fast and the rebound happened really fast as well. And, and 2008 was really fast, um, but 2000 was quite slow. Um, you know, it was... Uh, more prolonged, drawn-out process. Um, and we've just been through a decade-plus-long bull market, which um, you know has been a very long process. Um, so I think um, open-mindedness is probably the, the key takeaway and um, you know, being open-minded that it may not be just a sharp down and up like we've kind of been conditioned to, that it may actually be the more prolonged, drawn-out thing with lots of ranging and ups and downs throughout. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a that's a valid way of framing it. So everybody here again, uh, please make sure you follow Callum. I'm going to have this as a uh, edited podcast on my YouTube channel. Hopefully things will be okay. I, I, I can tell you personally, it's been a, a very uh, stressful period in my own life, my own career, and I know a lot of people are feeling that in different ways as well. So as I always like to say, uh, be kind, follow Callum, and enjoy the rest of your uh, Sunday. Thank you, Calum. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, absolutely. It's um, yeah, and I think too on that note, um, you know, it all sounds fairly pessimistic that um, what I've been saying, but um, it all goes in cycles. And on the other side of the bear market is another bull market. Right, and it's true, absolutely. So, all yeah. right, very good, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Calum. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. 
Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.